Hello and welcome to Professor Meets Students, a new podcast about academic research. Today we're going to be talking about the history of modern Thailand. I hope you enjoy. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Patrick Jory. I'm a senior lecturer in Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland. Excellent. You did your history honours at the University of Western Australia. So first off, why Western Australia? Uh, well, I'm from Perth originally, so I went, as most Australians do, you go to university usually in your own state. So I went to UWA, uh, did history and languages, um, and ended up uh, doing honours in history. Excellent. What kind of piqued your interest, uh, you know, as a high school student in history? What what made you want to actually study it? I, uh, from quite a young age, um, I always liked reading. And I think my father had a lot to do with that. He, he was an academic, I should say. Um, but I remember that when I was very young, he used to take me to bookshops, as you do, I guess, and uh, buy me a couple of uh, Enid Blyton, do you know Enid Blyton? He's yeah. a children's author. A couple of books every week and I just devoured them. I'll read, you know, read them within a week and then be back the next week. So I read hundreds of them. Um, so I, uh, I, I, I like, you know, I guess I like sort of fiction, that kind of stuff, adventure stuff, the normal stuff that kids like. Um, by the time I was in my, at high school, I started to kind of go on to the more, the heavier stuff. I got, I remember got into some Russian literature, um, European literature. I was never interested in English literature, I have to say. Um, the sort of European literature was the most interesting to me. Uh, nor Asian literature at that stage, I had no interest in. So I um, was interested in, you know, books, um, fiction, not history to a certain extent, but not not uh, not overly so. And I found I was very good at languages. So I um, I was always very good at French. I won the French prize quite often. Um, I was good at German. Did a bit of German. Um, did a little bit of Russian at one stage. I always did well in languages, so I thought at university I'd do um, uh, continue with the history. I did French and German, did a bit of Latin, did quite well at that as well. But I thought at the when I decided to what I was going to do for honours that it was going to be history rather than languages, and language would be a sort of a tool. So I used some of my French and my Latin in my um, my honours research. And what was your honours research actually in? It was actually in medieval European history. Um, I was fascinated at the time medieval history. Um, the honours thesis was on a very interesting order of knights. They had these knightly orders back in the Middle Ages and this one was um, you know, they were fighting in the in the you know the Crusader states back uh, during the crusading period. And this order of knights um, was made up of people who had leprosy and this is you know this horrific skin disease that sort of eats away at your flesh and um, in medieval Europe at that time, there was a lot of discrimination against people with leprosy, like kind of AIDS, when AIDS sort of uh, was, the AIDS epidemic started in the 1980s, a lot of discrimination against lepers back then, that they were sinful people and this was God's curse on them. So they were sort of outcasts really from European society at that time. But in the, in the Middle East, um, because the argument of the thesis was that because uh, the problem of manpower was so acute that is these you know these crusader states were always sort of fighting these wars and there wasn't enough knights to 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 put on the battlefield to fight so they were forced to go to whoever was there and it just happened there were quite a lot of lepers 
Um, so these guys, they formed themselves into, a, into an, an order um, called the Knights of St. Lazarus. That was their name. And they used to go off and you know, fight, uh, fight wars against uh, the, the infidel in the Crusader states. I just thought it was a really cool topic, to be honest, at the time. You can imagine, you know, leper knights riding off into battle. It's just a really weird idea. So I thought it was a really fun topic to do. And turned out there was, you know, there's enough material on it, a bit of Latin stuff, which I was able to use, um, and also some of the French, um, some old French and, and also more recent uh, French secondary literature. So it worked out in the end quite, quite well. Yeah, I can definitely see how that would kind of pique your interest. But what made you actually go on to do research as a career? Uh, to be honest, it was just by accident. Um, although, as I said, I had my, my dad's an academic, and we have. A, I guess I was sort of interested in. I was, you know, I was a reasonably good student. I was interested in, in reading and these kinds of things. But uh, it was just by accident. When I finished my honours, I thought I would never step foot in the university again. I never wanted to see another book. To be honest, after I finished, I just wanted to go out and have have some fun, you know, travel, earn some money, and just enjoy myself. So I, I did that for. Uh, for, for a while um, and then I remember somebody gave me a I started thinking what I should do after that after about a year out and somebody gave me a book and I remember the book it was um, Edward Said's Orientalism it's a very famous book it was quite popular at the time and I read it and I thought oh, this is what I really I kind of missed this actually so I um, decided to apply uh, for a PhD and I ended up going back to uni but when I finished honours I, I really didn't think I the academic life was for me at all um, and even when I was doing my PhD, I'd, I'd never thought that I'd end up as an academic. I thought I'll get a PhD and I'll work out what to do after that. I noticed that you actually moved over to ANU for your PhD. What uh, what meant that you wanted to actually go over to ANU? Again, it was just luck. Okay. <laughs> um, the um, I when I as I say when I finished my honours degree, I um, I wasn't quite sure what to do, and by chance I was. I played rugby for the university back then, and uh, some guy was organising a rugby tour to Bangkok to play in the university and the armed forces and the police. They play rugby up there, and the halfback, which is a position that I played, the regular halfback was injured, so he couldn't go, and they were looking for a replacement player. So they asked me if I would go um, in uh, his place. I said, "Oh yeah, Taiwan sounds like an interesting place." It wasn't Taiwan. I knew Taiwan. I sort of knew, heard about Taiwan, never heard about Thailand. So uh, I got there and I was just absolutely fascinated with, with that country and I thought this is, I'd, I'd like to you know, find out more about this. So um, that was at the time that the Australian government was, it was the Keating government back in the early 90s and there was a lot of rhetoric about you know, educating Australia in, about the Asian region and they were offering scholarships. So I was lucky enough to uh, apply for one of those scholarships in um, uh, Southeast Asian history. So I applied for the scholarship and I was lucky enough to get it. The, um, the other thing was that I, I, when I thought, okay, I wanted to do some more study, I contacted my old professor and I said, look, I'm interested in doing some more study, but I'm, I'm really interested in Thailand now. Do you have any suggestions who I might talk to? And he recommended a, an American guy who was at Sydney University at the time, Craig Reynolds. So this guy is an expert in Thai history. Uh, he's the person to talk to. Uh, Craig Reynolds at the time had just got a fellowship to go to ANU. And um, so that's why I went to ANU because he... Uh, he was there, and I wanted to work on uh, Thai history. Fair enough. Definitely a change between kind of medieval history and suddenly going to Thailand, modern Thailand history as well. You might think so, but in many ways there are a lot of similarities. Um, 
uh, Thailand is, is a very strong well kingdom. It's a kingdom where with, with a very strong monarchy. Um, the the Buddhist monkhood it's full of monks. Um, the military go around. Um, they're very influential too. So it's a you know it's changed now, but um, still has a very large agrarian economy. There's a lot of you know peasant farmers. So peasants, uh, monks, kings, not so different from medieval Europe. What do you think that actually says about you, that that's what has caught your interest and in, that you've been researching for almost, what, 20 years? Again, I would say luck. I didn't plan it that way by any means, but I, I did have an interest, as I said, I've got to, you know, I guess I sort of uh, was reasonably good as a scholar and I had an interest in, you know, thinking and... I come from a family of teachers, I guess. My dad is a teacher, his brother is a teacher, um, his side of the family, there are a lot of school teachers. So there's, you know, I think sometimes that sort of you know, flows through the generations. Um, so I, I, I may not have ended up in academic, but I could have been, if I'd been in another area, it would have been, I think, probably something to do. I could have been a school teacher or, I don't know, writer or journalist, I don't know. There would have been something in that kind of area. But apart from that, I think it was just, you know, luck and opportunity. You know, just opportunities came up. I was in the right place at the right time. Moving on from your general background, I would like a book recommendation, particularly as you claim you're such an avid reader as well. So something that's had an impact on you. Yeah, there's, oh, there's so many. Um, and I these days, I, I you know, I, although Southeast Asian Thai history is sort of my research area, but I, I read outside that area as well, and even, I even read outside history too. Um, there's so many. I mean, I've, I read. I'm reading. One I'm reading at the moment is. Um, you should probably have a look at it too. It's called *Sapiens*. It's by a an Israeli historian, actually, a guy called um, Yuval Harari, I think is his name, and it's called *Sapiens*. And it's kind of like it's kind of like that big history paradigm. So it's the history of the Homo sapiens species from the period when they they evolved, um, along with I think there's six other Homo species, and basically the sapiens sort of wiped out the other species genocide, um, and it's looking at their transformation from a sort of hunter gatherer society to agricultural society to industrial society and just the kind of changes in sort of thought processes and so it's kind of history on the on the large scale and I think there's been a de, sort of bit of a debate over the last few years in history about I guess sort of its relevance as a discipline um, I think you know it's everyone I think there's a huge market for history so it's not in any in danger I don't think but people think I mean the debate is that has history become too narrowly focused on a particular historical period and you know changes in you know sort of five or ten years um, and has, has that really stopped us from seeing you know bigger historical processes that might take place over 100 200 300 years so there's been, now you're sort of seeing a little bit more of these sort of bigger histories um, there's the famous sort of big history that Christian Macquarie Anyway, he, he was famous for developing this course at, at Macquarie University, which actually caught the eye of Bill Gates, of all people. So it's kind of the history of, of, of the world, but going starting at the Big Bang and coming you know coming up to the present. So you only kind of reach you know, humans in if it's a 12-week, you know, 13-week course. You, you, know, you 
you only reach the beginning of humanity about week seven or week eight, you know, after all the, you know, the universe has sort of settled down. And so this is history on a very large scale. You know, okay, so you follow sort of the origins of, of the universe, the beginning of the world, um, the origins of, you know, Homo sapiens, etc., etc., and you end up in the present. Um, there's that. Um, but there's also, I think, if you look at the emerging area of environmental history, um, and looking at obviously the big the big topic of the day, climate change. So there's a lot of interesting history now taking place, which is looking at you know how climatic change um, has influenced human society at various points in history. So during, during the 17th century, for example, there was a so-called little ice age where you know, for a couple of decades that there was, there was, the temperatures had changed and had huge effects throughout the world. So there you know there were wars and revolutions and famines as a result of this climatic change. This is kind of a bit of an area now in history that people are looking at kind of broader historical periods. So that that's one I, I might recommend, but um, it's hard, very hard to sort of to to choose one. I mean, I read a really interesting book. It's nothing to do with history, but a book that's called um, "The Hidden Life of Trees" by a German forester, and it's about so this guy sort of his job is to manage forests in Germany somewhere, and he. Originally, he just looked at them as sort of uh, just kind of from an economics point of view, how to produce timber the fastest way possible. But he gradually started to understand the way trees grow, and basically, he, he sort of sees trees as basically animals. It's an absolutely fascinating book, and showing how they cooperate with each other, how they are very sensitive to um, everything that's happening around them, um, and they act in many ways like animals. So you have trees which are kind of loners, trees which are very gregarious. Um, it's just a really, I think, really um, unique way of thinking about trees. So I, I, I like books which kind of uh, change the way that you look at things. So that was one I, I read recently. You can see from the bookshelf, you definitely have a very good collection here. I'll have to pick both of those books up. I know on the big history front, UQ used to have a big history course. I'm not sure if it only ran for a year yeah, or Yeah, we did. You're right. And um, to be honest, the um, student feedback wasn't very positive, <laughs> to say the least. It wasn't a very popular course. And I can sort of understand the reasons for it. Um, I think perhaps there was probably too much science in it. And I think you know, students like their history, which is a bit more humanised. Um, not to say that having you know, that, that, that bigger picture isn't useful in some respects, um, but it just wasn't a very popular course. So we, we, re we revamped it, and now we've replaced it with a, uh, our new first year gateway course called uh, Turning Points in World History, which I think is a much more popular course. It's still kind of, you know, it starts, it's, you know, it's a broad time period, I think at least in the sort of medieval period, or maybe earlier. Um, up until the present, and it's quite global too. So it, 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 looking at you know, all parts of the globe, which I think is very useful, because we we have a um, quite an international history program here. So some people you know, love European history, some people like um, US history, some people like Asian history, Chinese, Japanese, Australian history. We try and kind of give all those students a sort of a pathway towards the area that they're they're interested in. So yes, we did have a big history course, but it's been uh, retired. Definitely of interest there at least. Maybe it'll be unretired in a few years, but yeah, I just recommend you to um to, to read uh read his his book. 
His second name is Christian. He's a famous professor at Macquarie University. Uh, it's called Big History. Anyway, the yeah. book is there, so by all means, it's a, it's a, very, it's a very important book. Yeah. So you can kind of see his perspective on, on how history should be understood today. Let's move on to your research. So I know last year you actually published a book, Thailand's Theory of Monarchy. Mm. So do you want to give kind of a brief explanation at least of what it was about? As most people would know, or maybe they don't, uh, well, Thailand is a monarchy. Um, and I think when people think of monarchy, they think of, I think in Australia, of course, and, and the West generally, they think of Queen Elizabeth and the British monarchy. It's, it's such a powerful, because it's such a, I guess, quite a popular monarchy despite everything that's happened. And it just it influences the way that we see monarchy generally. But the Thai, the Thai monarchy is very different. It's more like your old-style kind of absolute monarchy, you know, before the Glorious Revolution or the French Revolution. It's kind of like those old sort of medieval monarchy, but superficially modernised, but in some respects not very much. And modern Thai history really is, it's a, it's a, if you want to kind of summarise the kind of the central dynamic in modern Thai, you know, every country has a sort of a dynamic, a kind of a, a conflict that kind of um, you know, drives everything. In, in modern Thai history, the central dynamic is this tension between uh, understanding Thailand as this, this Buddhist monarchy with this pure uh, Buddhist, what we call a future Buddha. So it comes from Thai Buddhist, or Buddhist sort of theology, that is that the king is a, is a, is a, is a pure being who is... Um, Embarked on a, who has embarked on a, uh, a journey of self-purification. So you you act in a very moral way. You supposedly give away all of your wealth. You develop yourself in terms of your moral purity, um, and by virtue of that moral purity, you become the king. So and and you have a you know, that that so the, there's the idea of, of the country as a Buddhist monarchy, and of course, like all sort of modernising countries, there are democratising pressures. So in 1932, there was a group of um, civilian and military officials who carried out a coup against the absolute monarchy, overthrew the absolute monarchy and established a, a modern sort of nationalist regime. But it didn't take long for the, the royalists to sort of, sort of fight back. So really modern Thai history is this, uh, the central dynamic is this tension between this, this Buddhist monarchy and um, the forces of democratisation. So that's what I was trying to understand in this book. In particular, I was trying to explain the, as I call it, the theory of monarchy based on you know, Buddhist ideas. You actually go far back um, to kind of the importance of the Vesantara Jataka. Jataka, yeah, yeah. Um, the this is a very, very, very popular genre of li Buddhist literature that uh, was about these. There's, there's a series of about 550 stories. And these stories are supposedly told by the Buddha about his former incarnation. So Buddhism, of course, they have this theory of incarnation. So you're, you're continually sort of reincarnated. And uh, depending on how morally virtuous you are, uh, your, your next incarnation will, will be in a higher form of life. So if you're a, you know, a peasant in one lifetime, um, but you act in a very uh, virtuous way, in your next life you may be born as a merchant. Or you may end up as a, as a prince or a king. Um, so these stories of the Buddha are about his former life. So basically, how how he became a Buddha. And the final of these stories is called the Visantra Jataka, where um, the Buddha, in his former lifetime, uh, is in, reincarnated as a prince, 
and this prince is very famous because he gives away everything that he has. And this story kind of stands for this, the perfection of giving. So when Thai people sort of think about giving, it's a very important um, kind of moral act they think of this story. So he gives away, he gives away um, all of his wealth. Um, he gives away this famous white elephant, which are very um, precious beasts back back then. Um, he gives away um, all his his slaves, his chariots, everything he owns. Eventually, he ends up giving away his own children, and even his wife. So the the, other, so the Buddhist idea is that you detach yourself from everything that is of value to you, and that's a, a perfection. It's called perfection, and uh, you need to accumulate these perfections. There's ten of them. One of them is the perfection of giving. It's perfection of um, of, of striving, perfection of, of patience, perfection of equanimity. There's a whole lot of them. And these ten perfections sort of make up the sort of the Buddhist um, idea of the moral person. But the most important one is giving. And uh, having achieved that perfection, he's now, he's now able to be enlightened as, as the Buddha that, that, that people know. Um, this story, this particular story, was very famous in um, the, Thai, the Thai court. And, and so the Thai... Um, villages throughout the kingdom more generally. So it's kind of like, if you want to become a king, this is the, the person, this is the kind of the, the behaviour you need to, uh, to to follow, to imitate. You started on what I was about to ask next, that of the actual impact of the Buddhist ideas on the monarchy, and perhaps more the real impacts rather than what they were trying to be. I think it's kind of really sort of the, the Thai uh, version of divine monarchy. So if you... If you've done any European history, you know that the idea that kings were sort of divinely appointed and they could you know, touch diseased people and cure them of their illness, this kind of thing. Um, this is sort of the, a Thai version. So um, monarchs are, you know, they are absolute monarchs. They have, in theory, they have absolute power, but they are also religious beings as well. Um, future Buddhists, people on the pathway towards becoming a Buddha at some point in the future. There's a sort of a connection between moral purity and, and political power. So, people who are higher up in the in the in political hierarchy, so the, the royal family, the the princes, the aristocracy, are sort of are also sort of seen in, the, in these terms in traditional society as having this um, kind of moral purity because of the way they have built up their virtue over you know, incarnations, and as a result have been reincarnated in a higher stage of life. So you have a, a moral hierarchy and a, and a political hierarchy which dominates time really up to the modern period when the European colonial powers come in and start to challenge that, that idea with more modern notions of a, of, of a modern state. And that culminates really with the 1932 overthrow of the absolute monarchy, as I say, based on you know, democratic principles. It sort of comes back to this theme, the theme of the book. How does a um, Buddhist monarchy kind of reinvent itself when it's challenged by sort of modern, you know, modern sort of theory of democracy. So you mentioned before about the colonial impact. I noticed in your book that you say that it's possible that there was already modernity actually happening before the colonial impact as well. Um, it depends on how you uh, understand modernity, but if we understand it as um, a kind of increasing focus on the on the human, uh, rather than the rather than the gods, uh, increasing focus on what's happening in this life rather than, rather than the afterlife, an increasing focus on the sort of you know, rational thought rather than the supernatural, 
we start to see these things that are coming in prior to the arrival of the European powers. Um, and that is associated, there's a very famous um, Thai historian who wrote a, uh, a very influential book on this and he kind of has sort of documented how you can see these traits uh, being expressed in um, the literature of the, of the period you know, well before the impact of in modern education. And he associates that with the development of, a, of an export-oriented economy in the late um, 18th and early 19th century. So this is when you know, China is the Thailand's, um, the Thai Kingdom's biggest sort of trading partner. There's kind of big um, spurt in um, international trade, the development of a more kind of commercial, commercially oriented kind of middle class um, within the sort of an aristocratic sort of feudal kingdom, which is much more kind of much more so in many respects is similar to how we'd understand the middle class the middle class today. They're more focused on making money, they're focused on the here and now, they're focused on the rational calculation rather than um, hope, you know, faith in the spirit in the spiritual world or the supernatural. Um, so we, 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 we do see these things you know, start to emerge prior to the arrival of the European colonial powers. Um, and it's not just happening in, in, in Thailand, but you know, we can see it happening in, in India um, and in parts of China too. It challenges the notion that modernity is a something that the West has brought with it. Um, in fact, we sort of see elements of what we understand as modern elements of what we understand as modern um, sort of emerging prior to this period. When the contact with the West actually occurs, what about the actual colonial impacts? Well, that's a pretty huge question. Um, I'm wondering how I can um, summarise it. Um, well, I think it, first and foremost, it's a challenge to uh, the authority of the, the Thai monarch in this case. So and he sees around him um, other monarchs falling by the wayside. So you know, the, the Burmese kingdom at the time, they fought three wars against the British ending with the third Anglo-Burmese war in 1885, the British thought this is enough, we've had enough of this guy, so they abolished the monarchy. And if you look at sort of Burma today, a lot of its problems are partly because of this very traumatic and very sudden break with its past. You know, this suddenly, Bur the Burmese kingdom was one of the most, well, it was probably the most powerful kingdom in Southeast Asia up until you know, the mid-19th you know, century, and then suddenly um, the British take over and abolish the monarchy. Uh, pretty much the same thing happens in Vietnam. Vietnam also a powerful state, a powerful monarch, is also neutralised. Um, the, the Dutch, of course, have, have um, you know brought the the, you know, the Javanese monarchs to their to their knees. So the Thai kings have realised by this time you, you can't fight these guys. Um, if you can't beat them, join them, basically. So um, the the official sort of Thai nationalist narrative, which Thai, which you will find in a Thai history textbook at school, will say, well, the Thai kings were so brilliant in, in manipulating the foreign powers, they were able to preserve um, Thailand's independence and you know, modernise the kingdom. Um, the real story is that they basically gave the, particularly the British, but the European colonial powers more generally, everything that they wanted. Um, and Thailand became almost a sort of a, a, a indirectly a colony, particularly of the, uh, of the British Empire. They had, you know, Hundreds of you know colonial advisors overseeing the um, reform of the um, administration of the kingdom. You had to you know, Western schools sort of opening up everywhere, uh, not everywhere, 
particularly in Bangkok, but gradually out into the provinces as well. Your Thai um, uh, kings and the aristocrats are sending their kids to, to Europe for an education, particularly England, but also France and Germany, uh, Russia as well, um, which was seen as a sort of another modernising monarchy, modernising kingdom. Um, so this is so the the Thai kings were able to survive this period in which their their existence was threatened by the European colonial uh, presence in Southeast Asia. By about 1910, the, the initial threat was over, um, and the the new threat starts to come from within. So within you have a, a rising what we would call middle class, but people who are Western educated, they're quite modern thinking, they've gone to, most of them have gone to some Western schools, quite a few of them have stayed overseas. Quite a few of them are commoners, uh, not aristocrats. So they find their careers um, blocked with, you know, within the Thai kingdom by these you know, aristocrats and noble figures who are only in these positions by virtue of their, you know, their birth. So they get a bit um, annoyed irritated and frustrated because they see themselves as much more educated, much more, they understand uh, the world much better than these um, you know, ignorant, uneducated aristocrats do. And that sort of sows the seeds for this, this you know, big turning point in 1932 where the Atsu monarchy is finally overthrown, not by European colonial powers, but by um, these Western educated sort of middle class people. Thank you for sitting down with me. Okay, you're very welcome. I hope um, it was useful.